What's up, everybody? CJ Maurer here with another episode of CJ's podcast. I really do have to come up with a name for this eventually, but um, for the time being, I think CJ's finger quotes podcast is going to work. As you know, I went into this with no rhyme or reason other than I want to have interesting conversations with interesting people. And I think today we're absolutely meeting that criteria. I have Sean Lewis with SLC Advisory Group. Sean, how's it going? Thanks for Good. coming on. So the, the quick backstory is Sean and I uh, worked together at different companies uh, about six or seven years ago. And we've stayed in touch, but not a ton. And Sean posted something on LinkedIn recently that really caught my attention. And we'll definitely get into that. And so we've been catching up a little bit more. Uh, we've both started companies, our own companies, since um, the last time that we were really connected. Um, obviously, I started a, a marketing and growth agency and Sean started SLC Advisory Group, which helps businesses uh, mainly from financial and operational perspectives. I find it really interesting. But Sean, what, one of the things I find most interesting about you is your origin story, if you will. You know, you, you've lived in a whole bunch of places and done a whole bunch of things, um, whether it be in business or playing music. And I just, I just think your story is, is pretty interesting. So why don't you, why don't you tell us about uh, all the places you lived and then ultimately how you arrived in Buffalo? So uh, I think when I was four years old was the, when I left the United States and moved to Israel, spent about three years there. And my mom remarried there. So she married a Scotsman. So from there we went to England, spent a year and a half there, then to, then to Scotland and then we returned back to the United States in 81, lived in Charlotte for about four years, then moved back to Long Island, um, spent about my high school years there, uh, and then moved to Oneonta where I, I went to school and then I worked for a number of years. Um, I got to Buffalo because I decided that I was going to sort of leave my career as an urban planner and you know, get my feet wet as a rock and roll star, right? So come to Buffalo and move and we had a band that we were being produced out of Canada and we did a, a nice run for that for about six, seven years. And then I had to grow up and uh, I fell into a career in, uh, in business. What was the, do you have a favorite place that you lived? Oh, Buffalo, absolutely. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. Everything else, I was younger in some of these places, so it's, it's hard to be a kid, right? And then you know, you're, you're a kid growing up and things, but I really made a life for myself in Buffalo. And so I think that's really why I like Buffalo so much. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, as somebody who's not from here, I grew up in Connecticut and uh, I moved here after college and I've been here for 12 years. And um, I've always I've always enjoyed not just the fact that I have made a life here, but um, as soon as I arrived here, I wasn't sure if this was going to be my forever home. Right. I went to St. Bonaventure, which is only an hour and a half south. And I met a ton of people from Buffalo and I knew that I could go to a place and you know, live on my own, experience adulthood, figure myself out. And it was a place also where I already knew a bunch of people and was relatively affordable. So I was like, yeah, I could, I could totally do Buffalo. And then as soon as I came to Buffalo, I kind of marveled at how there's a, se a true sense of place here, uh, more so than I think where I grew up. Now, I, I absolutely love Connecticut. I, I, I loved my upbringing and, and everything about it, quite frankly. But I think compared to where I grew up in a lot of places, quite frankly, like people really identify with where they're from and where they live here, maybe more mm -hmm. often, 
more more so than other places. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. There's a solidarity between people from Buffalo that uh, you don't see, at least in Long Island and in New York. There's it's a different. It's more you know personal, right? Where this is a lot more group oriented, and I think that's what I really loved about Buffalo when I came here. F- fell in love with it here. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot more credibility to talk about what makes Buffalo unique as a community, because even though you were a kid when you lived in a lot of these places, you've lived in a lot of places as a, as a young boy and, and as a young adult as well. Um, so I think, that's, I think that's really cool. So you, you found your way into uh, a career. So why don't you talk about you know, your, your uh, career participation in Buffalo and then what led you to start your own business, become an entrepreneur? So as I was playing music, I needed to sort of supplement my income. I did a a stint at a music store on Grand Island for a number of years. And um, from that, I wound up getting a job with one of my customers. And that was my entry into home care, right? And that was the business that I wound up spending 20 years doing. And um, through that, I just sort of grew in positions along the way um, to a final point where my my prior position before SLC was a partner with another uh, another agency, and I spent about seven years doing that. Um, I think that as we grew as a business, I was exposed to more and more elements of running a business that I really, really liked and enjoyed more than certain other aspects of it. Um, one day, the stars all aligned, and I got the opportunity to really um, start a business of my own that focused just on those elements. So that's how I really became an entrepreneur. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about what your business does? So SLC is uh, it's an advisory and coaching service that really focuses on businesses that make this transition from like a small startup business mindset and feel um, and, and that type of culture to a, a larger or a medium-sized business, right? So it's that typically we'll say like a mom and pop business that wants to go into sort of more of a corporate feel to you know, maximize profits and grow efficiencies, but really it's just to get things in place. And I think what we do best um, is really we help business owners get unburied from their businesses as they make that transition, right? Um, If we get to speak to business owners earlier in that process, I think we can really help them prevent from getting buried by their businesses, right? So yeah, they say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Exactly. So we're all about passing on the experience of, you know, what we, what I learned, right. By making the mistakes along the way and um, really to get these owners to sleep better at night and really have the freedom in their lives that they really created these businesses to have. Right. That's by providing them the information that they need at their fingertips and getting the people and the systems in place so that their businesses don't need them to be there all the time to run well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, I mean, you and I were talking about this leading up to this conversation. I saw your LinkedIn post and I was like, oh my God, Sean, haven't talked to him in a while. Got to reach out. I love this. I would love to have you on and talk about this idea that you bring forward about, um, you know, this new culture of apprenticeship. But we'll get into that in a second, right? So for those of you who don't know, why would you know, right? That me reaching out kind of spurred us to have this conversation. And one of the things that, that I was talking to you about is how, you know, quite frankly, my business is about five months old. And the only reason why I'm, I'm running this business is because I'm really good at, at marketing strategy. I'm really, really good at knowing what small and medium-sized businesses can and should do uh, from a marketing and growth perspective. I, 
in terms of running a business, I have, I have a lot to learn, which is why I think it's kind of funny when some people, maybe they just want to be friendly or complimentary. They say, you know, as a successful business owner, right? I, I am not a successful business owner, at least not yet. I hope you are. You're running a business now. I am, but here's the, but here's what my thing is. I am a successful marketing strategist who has been able to leverage that success to start a business. It's only five months old, right? There's, there's a lot to be learned and there's a lot of milestones I need to reach before I could consider myself a successful business owner, right? So there's so many things involved with running a business, um, managing, you know, finances and cash flow, operational efficiency, um, people, right? right? Protecting your time, because that's another thing that you know, I certainly have, have succumbed to and, and a lot of other businesses, business owners I know is they get in situations, we get in situations where uh, we start to get too deep into the business and then the process, the whole operational process becomes so dependent, overly dependent on yeah. us and our time and then it weighs, right? And yeah. that's the problem, right? Because time is, is a fixed asset. There's only so many hours in the day. And so if you're, if you're just, if ever, if, the business moving forward always needs more and more of your time. That's a risky proposition to be in. That could lead to burnout. That could lead to a whole bunch of other things. And so, so obviously like what you do really, really catches my attention. And I think probably I would, I would think for a lot of other businesses too. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the things about, entrepreneurs is it's it's control right we start our business so that we can have control over aspects of our own lives and of our own destinies right but that that spills out into how we run our businesses and we can't give up the control that we need to to get the freedom to get the to get things in place the trust that we need to give to people to do their jobs um the responsibilities and the the empowerment to do those things so it's this, you know, this sort of balance between the control and relinquishing control and how we're hardwired as, as entrepreneurs. That is 100% true. So I have a project manager that helps me out part-time. Her name is Molly and she's fantastic. Literally everything that she's done for me has been great. Shout out to Molly. <laughs> um, but so like part of like me helping her be successful and helping and help her, you know, help me as much as she can involves handing things off that normally I would do myself. And even though I have no doubts in her ability, like the idea of just like unloading things, I realize it has nothing to do with her or anybody else. It's it's difficult for me because sometimes I just might think, well, how long would it take me to explain the way I do it the right way, right? The way that I do it, the way that makes me feel comfortable. And then by the time I explain that, would it just be quicker to go and do it myself? And that may be true, but in the long, that may be true for one or two instances, but in the long run, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately not helping myself. And one of the things that I'm finding is that when you have, good people, right? Like Molly and like a whole bunch of other people, when you have good, talented people, yeah, they can, one, they can take coaching, but two, in many instances, they could probably figure out a way to do it their way. And often it's better than how I would have done. So I find that really refreshing. And so I'm getting more and more used to this idea, not only because I, I believe it to be critical if I want my business to grow without, you know, working a hundred hours a week, but also because in many instances it makes the product better too. Right. But Uh, you know, that's the process. It's, it's a matter of, of getting comfortable with that. So, and I still have a a long way to go to be honest. So it's a process, right? Yeah. 
So um, let's talk about this article that uh, you published on LinkedIn. I find it really interesting. So I'm going to, I have it pulled up right here. Um, it is just a LinkedIn post. You published this on April 17th, 2020. The title is the social contract business and employee commitment to a meaningful recovery. Uh, first of all, like whether you're watching this video on YouTube or audio or whatever, I'm going to put a link to this in the description. I'll put a link to this uh, on my website where I publish this as well. So anybody watching or listening, um, just scroll down <laughs> wherever you are and there will be, there will be a link to this. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things, but, but first and foremost, like this was something that was, was written in response to the current global pandemic and the effect that it's having on the American work, place, not just from the perspective of employers, but employees as well. So before we get, before I ask you a couple of questions, um, what was your inspiration to, to write this and why did you feel it was important to share? I had uh, seen a projection that unemployment rate would possibly get up to 30% if things um, were to continue this way for longer than four or five months. Um, they were talking about how many businesses would not really reopen their doors, right? This was very early on when everything started to sort of happen and we started doing the social distancing. But um, prior to the PPP loans and all of this stuff and just right after the, like maybe two weeks into that whole um, social distancing and people being sent home. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a permanent change, right? And no matter how quickly things happen, the road to recovery will be long. And we're going to change things permanently for both the employers and the employees. We had already sort of been running up into this position that we're in now with a lot of distrust between employee and employers, a lot of engagement issues that you know, people were talking about at their jobs and both for the employer and for the employee. And um, it just sort of woke up one morning and I thought, wow, you know, it'd be, we should really get back to something which was an old style of work, which was apprentice, right? And what is it about those um, apprentice, you know, teacher relationships in positions and, and in, in jobs that really were effective? And really, it's about trust and commitment, right? Mm -hmm. And making sure that the employee feels like they have a future and the employer feels like you have a future with them also. So, and I think that's what we need in order to really maximize the recovery and also not to have businesses it's changing the way the businesses, what their focuses are and putting back more towards society and helping everybody rise together again at the same time. Yeah. One of the things I read a manifesto by Seth Godin. Are you familiar with who Seth Godin is? Absolutely. Yeah. So he published a manifesto back in 2012 called stop stealing dreams. And that was about his belief in how the educational system should be reformed. Right. He was calling attention to uh, some models that he asserts are broken and how we should try to reimagine school. And I think he actually recently like re-released it. Um, I think in, in light of all of this distance learning and things like that. But one of the things that I remember taking away from that, because I read it, you know, whatever it was, eight, eight, seven, eight years ago when it first came out, was that back when, right? we didn't go to college right after finishing our primary school, right? right? We took apprenticeships first and learned to learn to skill, learn to trade enough to the point where, you know, we, we 
could do it on our own. And then we pursued, if, if that was something that people were interested, then they pursued higher learning college. Right. But now um, we just, you know, load ourselves up with a bunch of, with a, with a bunch of knowledge, with a bunch, with, with a bunch of school. And we're seeing instances where people are coming out of school with a lot of debt and not necessarily qualified to find a job in the field that they're after. Now that's not always the case. And I'm not, I'm not bashing college. I went to college. It was really good for me. It was really good for a lot of people, but there's no denying that the bill of goods that a lot of us were sold on when we were kids, go through high school, go through college, get good grades, and then, you know, you'll get a job. It's not quite that easy. And uh, what most employers are looking for is experience, at least to get started, at least enough experience right, where you can be dangerous. And so that's one of the things that really caught my attention about this, is this idea of apprenticeship. Now, part of being an entry-level employee in any field, you're, nobody's expecting you to be an A player, right? They're expecting you to learn. So I think there is some, there is some built-in characteristics of apprenticeship into any entry-level job. But I wonder if there, if it was more dedicated and called attention to, if it could serve both the employer and employee better. And I think that seems like what you're trying to get at here. Yeah, I think really, I think employers have really taken the place of helping people really, school isn't, and our, our society isn't really educating our kids how to be employees, right? How to work, how to interact, right? There's where our maturity levels are sort of being pushed over and over over time in years, right? So when we come into our first jobs, we, we're, really, we're not really fully adults yet, I, I don't think, right? So no. it's really been relegated to the employer to really raise that last two years, let's say, of adulthood and maturity and how to interact uh, at, at a workplace and, and what it means to learn and be a learning employee. Um, and also interactions between the employees, the dramas that we get from people because they're still in that maybe middle high school type of mentalities. So it's really relegated to the employer to sort of finish that training off. So you basically are asserting that the employer should start thinking of themselves as an extension of schooling, even though they're, they're not, they wouldn't be providing, you know, traditional school, but for the first couple of years of an employer, they're, they're continuing the education that employee needs to ultimately become proficient in that field of work. Absolutely. But you also assert that, this could be beneficial for employees as well. How does that, how does that work? So the whole idea of an apprenticeship culture is really that it's for the employer, it's a commitment to teach, right? And for the apprentice, it's a commitment to learn and to stick around long enough to really give back to the company that's committed to them and invested in them. Another way of, of saying this really is that it's um, the employers are, are really feeling like they're providing a career for somebody and the employee is gaining a livelihood. So an apprentice gains a livelihood, right? That he gets to be able to be at a company for a long period of time, grow through that company, and then eventually at some point be able to move on to another company or, or somewhere else, maybe start their own business. But there's a, a, a sort of return on investment for the employer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you've heard, you've heard certain companies offer like golden handcuffs, like incentives <laughs> that you know, basically financial incentives that incentivize employees to stick around longer. Do you, do you see that fitting in with, with this or is, am I just kind of, you know, making an unrelated observation? 
I think that's part of it, but I think you want to motivate employees intrinsically, not extrinsically, right? So if they come in with a feeling that they've, they're really benefiting from a, a career and, and, and being recognized um, and, and gaining the, not just the, the monetary benefits, but also the personal benefits and the recognition, um, the personal satisfaction of uh, committing and doing good work and fulfilling work for themselves, that's, a, I think, a far better uh, motivation than a golden handcuff at the end of the day. Because someone else could always offer a better set of golden handcuffs. That's true. That's true. And that's a really good point. One, I've, I've read research that um, millennials, more so than previous generations, are motivated uh, by non-financial rewards. Like they're, they're, they want to um, be at a place that they feel like aligns with their values, right? They want to work at a job where they're given uh, freedom, where they're given the ability to, you know, try things, do things, right? Feeling like they really belong and they're, they're actually making a difference in the company right. or in the world or whatever. And I have to say that uh, I actually have an example of that. About a decade ago, one, I, I left a job that was a, it was a pretty good job early on in my career. Uh, but it was clear to me, I was, I was bringing I, ideas for new projects forward. And while the company was receptive to the ideas in general, um, I felt like they were a little shut off to allowing me to kind of lead those projects, right? Like I was, I was showing initiative and I was willing to, you know, I was willing to move some of these things forward. Uh, but I think they, they kind of felt like, well, no, your place is over here. Like that's, you, you do this. And, um, you know, as an employer now, I can, on one hand, I can understand why an employer would, I don't know, want an employee to do their job and maybe the idea that they would feel threatened if, if an employee takes interests outside of, you know, what is technically on their job description. But on the other hand, I would love to have an employee to take initiative to, to start and advance projects that are going to help my business. Uh, and that they like it and that they're good at it. And so like, honestly, it was realizing that maybe I didn't have the opportunity for growth, whether that be for intrinsic growth or, you know, moving, being promoted and things like that, like that, that it wasn't as uh, soon on the horizon that I maybe would have thought it actually led me to leave that company and, and go somewhere else. I think it's also part of that whole control thing too, right? Um, it's also harder to give up control if you don't have that trust that the person's going to be around for a while. So they, you sort of want to, employers typically put their employees into these boxes so that they know that they can keep them there and that they're guaranteed X amount of time before they move on and they don't invest too much into it. Well, that's the other thing too, when you mentioned this in terms of you know, you, you kind of set in this article, you set forth ideas of, okay, these are the commitments that employees would have to make to employers. And these are the commitments that employers would have to make to employees. And one of the things that you suggested is that employers should be mindful of like the outdated um, models for time and inflexibility. Yeah, I think we, that? yeah, we've changed the way the world works now altogether, right? People want to integrate their their lives and their businesses together so that I think people are far more willing to break that nine to five mold and spread it out over a whole day, but have their personal time in interspersed in between their work time. When, um, like at the former company that I was, we had a number of employees and number of administrators inside the company. And 
I would never hold anybody that can't do Facebook. I didn't mind if they had a Facebook running on the side as long as they were being productive. I, I really wanted to focus a, on a get the job done mindset as opposed to um, you have to work eight hours a day, right? This mm-hmm. was, it's, I, think you, I think it's unreasonable to, to expect that you're going to get eight hours of full attention from somebody, right? So let's embrace it and give somebody the personal freedom to intersperse their personal and work life together. You'll get more out of them, right? Their productivity will be better. Yeah, I've also heard that taking breaks increases productivity. Absolutely. And I've, seen, I've experienced myself, even though I'm not always good about taking breaks often enough. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's at the end of the day, right? Um, if you're, I don't know if this is the best example, but if you're Netflix and you want, and you're in talks with a production company to make a new show and you want it streaming by June 1st, right? You, is, is it delivered on time? at a high quality, you're happy, right? right. Do, you, do you care at what points of the day these people made it or you know what, what yeah. sprints or breaks they took? And I think that's true too. Like at the end of the day, I think we need to be very mindful of what we want out of people, uh, not just in the long run, but for every project that's assigned. And I think that what, how you're, what, like the quality of your work and that it is delivered on time matters way more than when you do it or where you are when you do it. Right. And if, and if you've hired right, you've hired adults already. So treat them like adults, right? Yeah. So, and then they can manage their time and manage their work product. Yeah. I've, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've been in, I, I was the director of marketing for a payroll and HR company. And uh, I, sometimes I would notice that the, the clients of this company. So basically these could be the business owner. They could be the HR director, uh, operations manager, administrative person, basically people who are in charge of getting the employees paid and things like that. And I remember there was a new, I think it was a new law passed uh, that in New York that employers have to give employees, I think up to three hours of paid leave to vote if they're unable to, to vote on their own time. And, you know, I just remember there were, there were a lot of people who were like, who were like, how can we, is there a way that we can prove, you know, we can get our employees to prove to us that they voted like during that time. And like, I don't know, what if they, if they just get a sticker? Do we know they actually voted? Things like that. And I just think like, I just remember thinking like, that is like, that is absolutely not the way I would ever like that would be the least of my concerns with my employees, like is, is trying to validate that they did something during a three hour window. You know what I mean? Like that just feels so suffocating to me. The opposite end of that is the companies that say they have no vacation policy whatsoever. You take as much vacation as you want and need and the time off as long as the job gets done and you're not jeopardizing the, your teams, right? And isn't so. it true? Tell me if this is true. I've heard somebody say that for companies with unlimited vacation time, people generally employees generally take fewer, like less vacation time than they would otherwise. Is that yeah, true? It's a self-policing system. It's yeah, it's, it becomes a peer pressure thing. I, I, I can't explain it. I don't know what the, I've read about these things also. Right. Um, but it, from what I gather, it's, it's peer pressure. Yeah. The expectation of the job is also bigger, right? So that you're, if you're going to get all these freedoms, your responsibilities are just that much more complicated too. You know, it's funny that I brought up Netflix because they several years ago published a slide deck about their culture. And I think it was called like freedom and accountability, like how this, you know, how Netflix works, what it means to work at Netflix. And it was, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the freedoms that they offer were incredible. 
but they also expected a lot out of you. So if you are that right type of person, you're probably going to fit perfectly. Did you happen to see that? I did not. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, uh, I'll send it to you afterwards. It might be, Thank you. I feel like you would, this is something that I feel like you would really um, enjoy. And I also heard, and again, this is conjecture, but I also believe I remember hearing that the HR director who created that policy ultimately like a couple of years later was not like meeting her expectations and ultimately like did not fit the culture anymore. And she was, I believe she was let go. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, um, I'm not really interested in whether or not that happened, but it is kind of interesting that like the idea that no one is above the law, it would be very much like the exactly. policy that I read for the person who implemented it to, you know, maybe not meet it. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so yeah. So, um, how is, uh, your, you know, obviously this pandemic is taking, um, uh, a lot of casualties, um, not just, you know, people at hospitals, but also professionally, like people being furloughed, losing their work um, and things like that. And, and obviously that's what's prompted you to write this article. But um, how, how are like between, you know, your business and your clients and things like that, how, how are most of you guys faring during all of this? So I have clients that are all over the board, right? Some were essential services that we're really, they're still humming along without any problems, right? Um, other businesses took real, you know, real hits up to 75% of revenues right off the bat, right? Um, so there's a, you know, you start dealing with management of really just the, the management of the regulations for essential businesses and then the cash flow management for the, the businesses that are, that are really, really struggling, right? Um, this is uh, it's across the board. For me, it's been a sort of a mix of both, right? I have clients that I, that I had specific face-to-face, -face, right? Part of my job is going on site for three or four hours of operations management, right? Those I can't do anymore. I do as much as I can remotely. But the, the CFO side, the financial side, I can do you know, from anywhere. So I've been lucky about being able to maintain that side of the business while the other side is, is sort of on a hiatus for now. Yeah. So there, so there's been instances where you do things face to face, where you felt like it hasn't been able to transition well enough to uh, basically remote meetings. Yeah. Because you have to be on site, right? Working on the shop floor for the manufacturing companies, things like uh, that. So those you have to, you really have to be there. You can have someone walk around with a camera. It's just not the same. Yeah. But yeah. yeah that but, uh, and the coaching face to face. I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Finish, finish your thought. I was saying like, but there's also the interaction when you do face-to-face -face coaching. It's a lot different, right? The personal space between the two of you, um, face, body language, all that stuff works a lot better. Um, it can be done on this, but uh, I think it, it creates more time to get things done, right? So, Yeah, I'm with you. I, I really like uh, video chatting. I like the fact that I don't have to drive. And so it just, it gives me a lot more time in my day. I can have more meetings. I can be more productive. And in, mo in something like this, this is, this is great. I'm having a lot of fun doing this and I'm having a lot of, in most instances, conducting client meetings this way, but I absolutely prefer face-to-face. -face. I absolutely do. I really miss it. I'm super excited when, whenever this happens, when, you know, when we can go back and, and meet with people face-to-face -face and go get, you know, go get coffee in my favorite coffee shops and, and things like that. Um, I really miss that too. Personally, as a family, like how are you guys holding up during all of this? So it's been interesting, right? So I, 
we now have a house full all the time, right? And um, my wife is a teacher and she's been doing her remote learning. And I think one of the most fascinating things about this is that my wife, myself, and both my daughters all have Zoom meetings at the same time, right? So all of us are on Zoom meetings. They're remote learning on Zoom. We're having our business meetings and my wife is teaching on Zoom. So it's, it's, it's incredible to see everybody doing the same activities, right? Um, I think that's, it's, 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 it's heartening in many ways, right? Because now there's an identification with your family in a different way, right? Daddy's working this way. My kids are working this way. How old are your girls? Oh, I have a, I have a 12 and one's going to be turning 11. Wow. So they're like knee deep into, into schooling. So my kids are four and two, right? Uh, my daughter's in pre-K. My son is, he's only two, right? So um, for us, Yes, we do some activities with our daughter, but, uh, and we're, we're starting to like practice like writing and, and like making sounds of letters and like, you know, pre-reading activities. Um, but it's not like we have to keep up with any type of curriculum or homework or things like that. And, you know, from, from the parents that I've spoke with who have real school age children, that's got to be hard. I don't know if your wife being a teacher makes it a little bit easier, but now you're taking on double duty where you have to continue oh, yeah. working. And then also you're, you know, basically being um, homeschool teacher. Oh yeah. It's, it's double the work because now you've taken your, your traditional eight to two thirty day and you spread it out now between seven and six o'clock at night. Right. And it's just the amount of time you're doing the classroom work, but now it's really more one-on-one, -on -one. at least that's how she's been approaching it. Right. And, um, giving the, the personal attention to each kid. It's a foreign language, so um, they really need to have that conversational aspect of it in the practice, so she's really focused on making sure that they have the time to do that. Um, for the kids, they've been shortened their, their day down to maybe three or four hours. For my older daughter, who's a, a consummate introvert, right? this has been golden for her, right? She gets to sit in her little box for you know, the three hours and get her work done and focus at her pace and not worry about anything else. And, and for my extroverted daughter, she's, um, uh, she's a little bit, she misses that whole social interaction for sure. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. How, how are they liking it? Because I'm, I'm hearing mixed bags and I think it always depends on the kid. My, my son doesn't know the difference really, but my daughter, she definitely misses school. Um, uh, actually, it's kind of heart-wrenching. Like, um, you know, it was, a, it was a couple of weeks ago and I was like tucking her in at night and she was like, daddy, when do I go back to school? Like, she's like sad about it. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, her ability to process what's going on, she understands that we can't go places because lots of people are getting sick, right? Like she understands that and she remembers that. Um, but I know she's really itching to, you know, return to normal. And I think, you know, so are a lot of other people, um, obviously not at the expense of public health, but yeah. Yeah. So no, um, it'll be interesting to see if school, do you think school will start on time in the fall? It's a good uh, question. In, in public, I mean, like not just distance learning. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I read that, you know, like Caltech and some other universities are not going to have fall classes. So for the mm -hmm. university side of things, um, it's really about if, if school starts, will parents send their kids to school? I think there's two sides of this. That's the other too, thing right? too. Will they, yeah. will they feel confident, right? Yeah. because um, I don't. Uh, same thing at the workplace, right? Like even when people go back, there's going to be new, like some requirements, right? Like in terms of, cleanliness and health and things like that. And then other best practices, 
But then even when you let somebody back, you know, somebody has a compromised immune system or maybe they just feel uncomfortable about this whole thing because this virus is not just going to miraculously go away. Um, the risk to the teachers, right? Because they're yeah. going to be in these rooms and it, it turns out that, you know, this, the virus does spread through recirculated air. And, you know, if you're going to spend four or five hours in classrooms with kids, you know, at a concentrated rate, I don't know. I think it's going to be difficult to sort of put together those systems for that type of situation for schooling. Um, but I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I, this is my, I, I don't believe that things are going to be quite normal in August and September. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, all we, can do is, all we can do is speculate. I really have, I have no opinion yes. um, because I don't know. Um, but then you also hear Niagara, Niagara. I think they already announced that in the fall semester classes will be provided on time on campus as mm -hmm. normal. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting because I don't know how many colleges or universities have announced that so preemptively. And I think it boils down to what the, what the leadership of each institution believes that the, the future is going to hold. Are we going to have a second wave? Or are we not going to have a second wave? Is the second wave going to be worse? Is it worth the risk? And these are everything that everybody's individually balancing between themselves because no matter what, even if we get, you know, Moderna gets this, their, their phase three up and running and they, 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 everything becomes successful and they start producing in, in, in January, it's still going to take months and months and months to start getting everybody up to speed and, and get everybody um, immunized. immunized. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So this is a long haul. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I think that it's pointed out how fortunate we have been, at least in the United States, because for a lot of people, this is the greatest inconvenience that they've had in their lives. And relatively speaking to a lot of things that happen around the world, this is, if nothing else, a reminder that we, we, we have it pretty good if this is the worst we've been inconvenienced. Yeah. You know. I completely agree. For some, it's now remember, for some, it's devastating without a doubt, right? So there's everybody's experiencing this in, in a different way. Um, but as far as hardships go, um, I mean, I didn't live through World War II. I don't know. I don't have. But I imagine from the stories that I've heard from my grandparents, there's obviously very little to compare as yeah. far as. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting. I, I just it is it is interesting and devastating and exciting and confusing and so many other things all at once. Um, it really is. And um, I just know that, you know, as I get older, my kids, hopefully like this all passes before they have an ability to truly comprehend it. And then mm -hmm. maybe, you know, when, when they're your children's age, right. When they're 11 and 12, they might ask like, Hey, what was that like? And, you know, we'll probably have a lot to, cause like they lived through it, but of course, you know, they, they don't really know. <laughs> what was it like that to go to work in an office? Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Oh, when I was your age, we had to sit yeah. in traffic for, I mean, we, that's another thing too. I mean, when you think about it, Buffalo does not have a lot of traffic, but <laughs> Even still, we won't. Nobody really bats their eye at a twenty or thirty minute commute, right? right. You live in, where do you live, Sean? Um, on the border, like uh, Snyder, Snyder Eggertsville border. Okay, so it's not quite thirty minutes for you to be downtown, but there are parts of Amherst, right, yeah. where it's it's a half an hour to get downtown. Yeah, and we don't really bat an eye about a thirty minute commute yet. 
when you think about that, that's twice a day, five days a week. You do the math, that is five hours a week. What would happen if you gave an effective employee five hours back in their week? Oh my God, can you imagine the New York City area where we grew up where it would it, it was nothing for us to spend two hours on the road to go 15 to 20 miles, right? Right. So you'd give people back, I don't know, more than a third of their lives? Yeah, my dad, my dad used to... Um, used to commute like at least an hour going down the Sawmill River Parkway. There's a lot of people where I grew up um, in Southwest Connecticut, took the Metro North and that was an hour train ride, right? So it's maybe 10, 15 minutes, five, 10, 15 minutes to get to the train station, right? Depending on where they, where they live, um, Brewster, Southwest, wherever. Um, and then hit that down. And then by the, I mean, by the time, and then walking to the office or taking a cab or whatever, I mean, you're, you're talking, at least, like at least an hour and a half, maybe two yeah. hours to get to work yeah. every day. If you, if you, four hours per day, that's, you know, five days, that's 20 hours a week. That's half your work week. You've just gotten back, right? That's unbelievable. That yeah. is unbelievable. I mean, so I really do think, I mean, it's an, so on one hand, I'm excited about what this means for people and certain employers, because again, more, more time, time is the most precious asset right is the one thing that we all have the same amount of it is the ultimate fixed asset and it's also the most precious yes um you know so i'm excited about that and i'm excited about people being more productive uh businesses getting more productive workers and all of that what i'm not excited about is all of i mean if you if you if you take if you get out on grand central on 42nd street i mean i know that's Times square and that's touristy but then when you kind of get out of the immediate tourist area there's a lot of uh, bodegas and restaurants and convenience stores that support all of the commuters, right? Yeah. All of the people that come in there and like, and, and, you know, I wonder what, how it, and these skyscrapers that are just filled with people, like, I, are we going to see empty skyscrapers in downtown Manhattan in midtown Manhattan? And then possible. what is that going to mean in a smaller city like Buffalo? You know, it's very possible. I, I already started reading about that. It's, also tied to the tourist industry and how many people coming to New York. So there's the office, the future of office now, how much office space is going to be a glut. Um, I think that we've changed regardless of when this vaccine comes along, we've changed um, the nature of work and social interaction forever. Um, and the fact that the time it takes for us to get back to a set of normalcy the amount of businesses that will return, um, it's going to be a fraction of what we're in business before. One in four restaurants, I think I've read, are going to be able to open up their doors. Um, there's, and, and all the support structures from that. The unemployment rate is going to hit maybe 30%, right? And how do you start putting all these individuals back to work? Um, so they're not, they're not going to be any places for them to go to offices, right? So, um, this is an incredible, incredible um, change. Really, I, I, yeah. I think uh, I lost my train of thought. Go ahead. No, I mean it's it is incredible, and I think maybe we underestimate the magnitude. And, and although, like, it's very natural for us to focus on all the things that are positive about it or the things to be optimistic about, I think you're you're not you're not processing the situation correctly if you don't acknowledge like all of these all of these downfalls and it's, oh. it's really unfortunate and i feel so helpless because it's like what do you do no i agree i think there's a lot of denial going out there um i also think we're about to experience what happens when this the 
the P3 loans start to, we're over the eight week period and people are gonna run through that money. So what we've really done is we've spread this, really bought businesses, you know, two or three months of time to pay their employees. So now those employees are gonna go on to the unemployment rolls, the, the money might run out and then they don't have the monies for their operations and they still don't have the revenues coming in. So now you're gonna see an uptick on businesses starting to shutter um, and, and then therefore increase the unemployment rate. This is, uh, I think we're on the tip of, an, of a second wave of iceberg of unemployment and business closures. Well, um, I think you make a good case for that. I hope you're wrong, but I think it makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Sean, we've covered a lot and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Can we, um, what's, a, what's a positive note that, that we can end on before we wrap up? Um, this will pass, right? We will find ways to, um, we're, we're, we're a resilient nation, right? Um, I think that one of the positive things is that I think a lot of people will start new businesses, right? People, this gig economy that we had started before, we'll start to see all kinds of ways that people will start working together. There'll be all kinds of partnerships between entrepreneurs that will help support each other. I think there'll be communities of businesses that start up to sort of um, support right, everybody's livelihoods. And I think that's going to be a really positive thing. I think we'll change the, the way businesses prioritize things, not about the shareholder anymore, right? the levels of um, who the stakeholders are and what decisions are made for in businesses will be more leaning towards how do we help rebuild these parts of society that have been hit so hard. So I think there's going to be a lot of that. Yeah, I hope you're right because I think there's a strong case to be made that although I understand why a lot of these public companies prioritize the shareholder, I understand that. I think the prioritization of the shareholder has had very detrimental effects to the economy too, in, in a number of ways. So uh, businesses have to have customers, right? Right. Yes. Um, and there needs to be a demand, you know, like <laughs> that to, well, that's kind of the, your same point, but um, I, I also do share some of your optimism about more entrepreneurship, more, you know, this expansion of the gig economy and, and maybe a, like an evolution of, and maturation of it. So that maybe it's, it's more than just, you know, delivering goods, but that it can extend to lots of different aspects, like sectors of the, of the economy. Um, I think that would be really healthy. So Sean, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I thought you, you. you were a tremendous guest. You are a pleasure to talk to and, you know, a wealth of knowledge. And I really hope that we can, we can do this again. Thank um, you, CJ. I had a ball. Thing, if, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Um, they can go to uh, Sean at slcadvisorygroup.com and uh, shoot me an email and I'll get right back to them. Sounds good. And I'll make sure I include that in there as well. So Thank have you. a good day to you and your Thank account. you. You too. Have a good day. Bye.